dive in here. O God, your never-failing providence sets in order all things, both in heaven and on earth. Put away from us all hurtful things, and give us those things that are profitable for us, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. One time, I don't know how old I was, but I was a kid, um, and uh, I, I, I'm out of touch with ages, so pro- probably somewhere between 7 and 10. Uh, Christmas came, opened our gifts, and my dad told me, to, he, we rounded up the, all the wrapping paper and stuff and put it in a bag, and he said, take it out to the garage. And uh, so I did, and I came back, and he said, so what'd you see out there? I'm like, uh, nothing. And he said, he asked a few more questions. And then he said, you know, go out there and look around. Tell me if there's something different in the garage. And our garage growing up was a lot like my garage, just a, a mess. But I went back out and looked around, and lo and behold, right near where I set the bag of trash down was a bicycle. And this was a gift for me. It was a purple, uh, something like a spider bike. It had a banana seat on it. It had a big shifter right in the middle. It was a five-speed. It had uh, those funny handlebars and all. And it was used, but it was my gift. But and, and then evidently that trait that I had then has stuck with me. Becky uh, tells me this frequently about how I miss things that are obvious and how things that are right in front of me I somehow miss. Well, it's, it's one thing not to see the physical things because whatever, we're not paying attention or we, we overlook. But uh, our lesson today challenges us to evaluate the times that we're in with spiritual discernment and not miss out on what the Lord has to offer. So this is the thrust of uh, his his message for us today. So the first thing we're going to see uh, or look at is discerning the times. So in verse 54, it says, He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Now, this can't really be the same for every community, but I do find it interesting that this is the same in our community. I sit on my porch frequently, and and as I look to the west, we see clouds rolling in from across the Ohio, and then they, you know, let let open. You can just see the rain coming as I'm sitting on the porch. Um, and, and when, when you see those big dark clouds off that way, you know, you just don't have to be a Willard Scott or uh, that other guy, Al Roker, to figure out it's really going to rain. And this is, this is the kind of common occurrence that uh, they would have experienced. They, they just knew this. We just read out of 2 Kings, and we, talk, and we talked about Elijah and Elisha. But in uh, 1 Kings, in se- uh, chapter 17 and 18, there's the story of Elijah uh, in that face-off with that terrible king, Ahab. And there's the challenge one to the other, to the other and uh, Elijah uh, pours a trench around the altar and pours water all over everything, and then he calls down fire from heaven, and, and his God is proved faithful over the gods of Ahab. Well, immediately after that, 
Um, this is in a time of drought, and Elijah goes up on uh, Mount Carmel and begins to pray. And he prays seven times for rain to come. And on the he, and he sends a messenger to go and look, go and look. And the messenger goes, he comes back. No, I see nothing. And he, he prays more, and he go go look again. So he does this, and on the seventh time, the messenger comes back, and he says, I see a cloud off in the distance. It looks like a man's hand. Which I don't even know why it says that, and I don't find any significance in that. It's just a cloud, and it's in the it's out over the sea, which is in the west. And so it's the same story. It's us, you know, praying. You look out, and you, you see that cloud. And so with that cloud, and and he knew then his prayer had been heard, and the Lord was answering his prayer. And so uh, Ahab was told, "Prepare your chariots and go down before the rain stops you." And then in 1 Kings 18, uh, verse 45, it says, And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to to Jezreel. So this is the thing that, you know, hanging out in in this land in Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to be the Willard Scott to recognize it's going to rain. This thing's been going on for generations. Everybody understands how to do that. And so they're able to interpret the, the, the signs of the natural order, such as weather, just as anyone who lived there should be able to do. But Jesus' next words are a rather sharp rebuke. In 56, he says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? They were hypocrites because they couldn't recognize the significance of this present time. That meaning Jesus was among them. They were hypocrites because they didn't apply the same effort or energy in interpreting the present time as they did the weather. There was a significance... um, there were significant signs and wonders that, a, that pointed to a spiritual storm brewing. But they didn't care to pay attention. They didn't care to analyze these things. They didn't care to think through these things. For instance, this, this Jesus... I, I, should, I should pause and, and let's get back to... Uh, in, in 54, it says... He also said to the crowd, so what he has been talking to, he's been talking to his followers, and he's been talking to his disciples. It's like the disciples, the followers, and, and now it's the crowds in general. So these are not those who have, it's not only these people who have been with him and are buying into his ministry and, and what he's been doing. This is the, to the John Q. public, where he turns to the crowds. And so, yet he's still rebuking them because they are not recognizing the significance of the times. For instance, so Jesus himself, this, he's a different character. He's a different guy than, than, uh, than anybody else, than anybody else ever was. The weight of his person was significant. He would have acted differently. He, he, this would have been recognized. There was no pride, no lust, no jealousy in him. Have you ever hung out with someone 
And because of their um, actions, because of their attitude, because of the way they carried themselves, because of the way they responded to things, you recognized your own sin. You're like, well, this happened and that person reacted this way, and if that had been me, I would have reacted this way. This had to happen in Jesus' presence a lot. Jesus would have responded in ways that, by our own natural wiring, the people would, they they would have found this just a great contrast in his character. Jesus was simply different. He would have had a different moral and ethical code than anybody else hanging out there. He was blameless. There was no deceit to be found in him. There was no greed in him. His words amazed people. He knew scripture well. And he taught with insight and originality. They wondered. They were in awe when he would teach. His wisdom was, a fre- was, was fresh like no one before him. It was, it was a, just a whole different perspective when he would teach on the scriptures. He carried out miracles in public. Everybody could see this. Everybody could see him healing the blind, raising people from the dead. These are significant uh, signs and wonders, and the large crowds would gather to hear him teach. There was a kind of a magnetism as he would teach. No one had ever displayed such power and grace at the same time. And the disciples even had recognized him. We've talked about this. We've, when, we, we talked about it when they recognized it in Luke 9. But uh, we've talked about it since then. The disciples recognized and proclaimed him as the Christ, the one expected to come, the Son of God. So how could these people ignore you know, one of, the, one of the other things is the history of Israel. The history of Israel um, was well known. It was cyclical. There was, there was a cycle that would happen. And, and as you've read the Old Testament, you'll relate to this. That uh, the prophets would, would preach righteousness. Then the crowds, the people, Israel, would ignore them. They would reject that message. And then judgment would come. And we talk about, if, if you don't know history, you're uh, doomed to repeat it, or you're bound to repeat it. In this day, in this age, when the last prophet, which all the Old Testament has pointed to, is among you, and you don't recognize him for who he is, you don't recognize where we are in this cycle, prophets preaching righteousness, crowds rejecting message, judgment coming, then there's something just off here. So he, Jesus, is giving them a sharp rebuke to the crowds for not recognizing what's happening among them. I think, uh, I, I find this just very interesting. There was this mounting rejection also of the Messiah. That he, the, the crowds, the you could be far out in the crowd, I think, and pick up on this. Um, it, was, it was back a, a few chapters, and 
the uh, Pharisees are described as going to, they were going to lie in wait and see if they could catch him in something. They're, they're going to see if they can uh, bring him down, which of course they eventually succeeded uh, in doing when they hung him on a cross. How can anyone be so keen to interpret the natural but not see what's happening in the spiritual realm? It appears that there was just simply no interest. There's more interest in interpreting the skies of the day for the weather forecast than there is for this spiritual storm that's brewing. They simply had no interest in these cosmic events. Judgment would come. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about how judgment is going to come. Well, Jesus, judgment would come on this land when uh, at 70 AD, Jerusalem is sacked and, and the, the place is wiped out. The whole city is destroyed. They had time and they had opportunity and they had information to repent and follow, but they didn't. And today we see the same thing. There are signs of pending judgment all around us. Yet people would rather discuss such light things as the weather than give real consideration to engaging thoughtful discussion on heavier, weightier matters, like things of the spiritual realm. We live in a time where good is called evil, where evil is called good. We worship money. We glorify perversion and sinful behavior. And, you know, sure, sometimes when, I, when, when in discussions of current state of sinfulness, people will remind me that, well, these sins have been around forever, and I'm in agreement with that. They certainly have. But there's something different in our day and age where we've lost our shame for sin. What used to be hidden back in the day, I don't know, you might get a TV show out of it, or today it's out and loud and proud. And it seems to be that it's, have, there's a, 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 it's more overt, but it's more than overt. It's more than just being comfortable in sin. We call the sin something different. We label it something different. And then it needs to be accepted by absolutely everyone. So then it becomes pushed on everybody. These things are happening all around us. We turn lawbreakers these days into heroes or at least victims. We kill our unwanted babies and we call it freedom. We numb ourselves with alcohol, with drugs, to forget, I don't know, but lack of hope, boredom, to forget our current state, to, to, to numb ourselves to our current situation, uh, then perhaps maybe after that it becomes a habit. But so much so that you know, we are losing people right and left. And um, some time ago, somebody was, for various reasons, I was talking to a detective uh, after the shooting on my street in my home. And he talked about that there, he, he's been at it for like 30 years. And he said, yes, there used to be some specific areas of the city that were bad and where these kinds of things would happen and, and where drug overdoses were happening and so on. He said, but at this point, it's, well, it goes way above Marietta and it goes all the way down, way below uh, Ravenswood. 
So there is no place that's safe from this. And of course, you know that we rank, uh, sometimes it's first or sometimes it's second per capita of, of overdoses. Uh, we lead the, that's, that's a great stat to lead the country in, but we do. So we're losing our people right and left because there's no hope and then the acceptance and lack of shame for these things where people get into this stuff. And those losses of those people are affecting multiple generations. I mean, this, this, they talk about the opioid epidemic, and people wonder if it's really an epidemic. It is when, um, when kids are losing parents, and then the kids are staying with grandparents, there are more grandparents and more grandparents and more grandparents taking care of children all the time. And it's, this is yet another way where the evil one is messing up the natural order or the God design for the nuclear family to be. I think, I think we can mishmash uh, however need to be to come up with a family, uh, and God can bless those things. And, you know, praise Jesus that those grandparents would step in and, and care for kids. But the reality is what, what, uh, what the expectation is is that this, this child would have parents, and those parents would raise that child. Um, and then grandparents be of somebody that can help. But there's this problem with all these things because we want to worship ourselves as the center and measure of all other things. We want to be happy at all costs. And that's our greatest, um, that's our greatest goal. And so when we're not happy, what do we do? And it goes back to last week where we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's that expectation that God's desire is to make us happy. That's not what the Bible says at all. It's just what we've been wired to think. And so much so that I think people are buying into all these other things because they become idols that make them happy. But what about us? What about you? Can you see the spiritual storm clouds a brewing? Can you can you see those things on the horizon? Can you determine the kind of state of the times that we're in, as well as I can determine when it's going to rain on my porch? Now is the time to turn and cling to Jesus and avoid the pending judgment. Whether he is coming soon or your end is near, how will you answer for discerning the signs of the times? So, and I, and I just want to clarify that that a lot of times when we talk about end times, uh, and and you know, depending on where you pause your channel surfing, sometimes you can get some interesting graphs and charts about end times and all this stuff, and then people get taken up in it. And I want to make the point that end times, we've been in the end times since Jesus ascended. So these are the last days. They've been the last days forever. That's what we talked about a week or two ago where we get tired of waiting and we assume the master's not coming. And so we act and behave like we want. Because if the only fear you have is whether or not the master's catching you, you're operating out of a wrong motive anyway. If it's not out of love and gratitude for what he has done for us, not what you're doing, then we, we've got it all backwards. And the reality is no one knows the day, no one knows the hour, 
But the reality is here that we may not make it back home from church today. We could easily get in a head-on crash and, uh, and, and die, perish on the way home. So when we're talking about end times or judgment or pending judgment, I think we need to consider whether Jesus could come back today. If he doesn't, you could go meet him today. Are you ready for that? And how would you answer in your accountability for interpreting the signs of the times? He offers, I think, some help in this next section, which uh, I think he's talking about discerning your own need. So we're we're to discern the times, but we're also to discern our need. Look with me in 57. It says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. When I first read this passage and I was thinking of you know where it's going and what its significance is and what its meaning is, I thought it was going to talk about how we as believers are to settle with brothers and not go to court. That's not what this is talking about. This is not this is not the brother who you have something against. This is this is an interesting little parable in itself. And there's a striking presupposition in this parable. Because Jesus doesn't say, go with your accuser if you're guilty. No, he assumes that we are all guilty. We're all guilty and deserving judgment. And there's only one verdict that's going to be given, and that is that you are guilty. Therefore, we should settle out of court while there is time. What this is, is the gospel call. We must discern our own need and admit that we are sinners who need a Savior. Now, this is hard. And I think it's hard, especially for good and decent people. I think sometimes for those who are, you know, not um, like in the, in the mainstream or in the, in the middle class kind of neighborhoods, those who've suffered lots, they don't have to be written to to explain that they are sinners. Yet, this concept of sinners to those who are good, decent people in the middle class neighborhoods who are productive members of society, I think this is hard news. I think it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, last week, with Bert's help, we, I, Bert and I went to uh, where he works, which is... Uh, St. Joseph Recovery Center, and we're uh, moving our stuff in and getting ready for a, a Bible study or a, a service, prayer service. Um, and while Bert and I were the only ones in the room, they have the posters on the wall of the 12 steps. Uh, what's, what's step one, Bert? <laughs> Admitting... That 
that that our problem is bigger than us or something. I, I, it, it, it states that very cleverly. I surprised I surprised him, and he know, he knows that as well as I know um, my name. Um, but it but it says essentially something. Of, you're recognizing or admitting to the fact that our problem is beyond our control. Uh, it's beyond anything we can. Uh, fix, and I and I, I read it, and I I said to Bert, I said, "Well, okay, yes, that was that is better than what I said." And and I looked at it, and I said to Bert, I said, "That, I mean, no wonder it's step one, but but that's the same step for Christians, for those coming to Christ, and how hard that is to get to step one." And I think there are a lot of good-looking people that do the right things and go to churches that are productive citizens in our society that haven't really taken step one. I think step one can be very hard. And I think that the further removed from um, the, the really, really bad people we are, the harder that is to recognize this is me. This is my. I'm. I'm. I'm going to give you my witness, my testimony. It's. This is true. I grew up in Lubeck. It was a great neighborhood. Everything was beautiful. I had a mom and a dad, and they loved me, and never doubted my love at all, ever. Had a great family. Have two sisters. Everybody loved me. I, I never worried about anything. Life was good, and uh, I was a good guy. My my mother was a school teacher. My dad worked at Borg Warner. They expected a lot out of me, and you know. I'm still trying. It, it, it was, it was, I don't have horror stories. But when it came to sinners, I knew that was somebody else. It wasn't me. Because if I was going along and I saw you broke down on the road, I'd stop and help you. I was not a bad, I was a good guy. I don't think I'm alone in this. There are some things I do that I think are rather unique to me. But, you know, the more people you get to know, you recognize... There are people who have those same weird tendencies sometimes. Now, thank goodness it's not all of us built just like me. But in this, in this respect, the fact that we're all sinners, it's there. I think we want to look and see who's done something very bad and say, that person is the sinner. And so we quickly judge others because of their sins. When we get out, when we get into an imbalance of law and gospel, we run the risk of seeing others sin, at least differently than ourselves, and then we call them out on it, or we look down on them and we judge them. But the problem with this is this is what legalism is about. If we primarily relate to God through the keeping of the law, then we're going to look down on those who don't keep the law like we do. And so what really becomes easier is to minimize the law and put it into something we can handle. And so if we can start talking about, you know, haircuts that don't hit your collar or go over or what kind of dress we should be wearing or denim jumpers or what have you, and we start hammering on these things, because these we can keep. But when it comes to matters of the heart, 
We fail. We just fail. But if, if that's how we're relating to the Lord and our relationship to the Lord, then what we're going to do automatically is judge others. We're going to judge others because they're not keeping the law like we do. Now, again, I know I'm not alone, so how often do you do this? It's a trap that the evil one sets for us over and over again. We fall for it over and over again. We hear someone's fall and we quickly assess ourselves, and then we assure ourselves that at least we don't sin like they did. No, we believe we deserve grace. Sometimes I may offend you when I say that we, you, don't believe God's word. And you're like, there he goes again. But of course I do. Of course I believe it. Of course I know it's true. And I know you know it's true, and I know you want to believe it. That's why I keep yelling at you. But we're, this believing, don't you wish it happened automatically, and boom, we were done? But our battle is in the, the unbelief of God's word. This is, this is the problem we have when we fall into legalism. We've already lost sight of the gospel. If, if we think that our relationship is secured by our efforts, if our relationship with God is secured by our efforts in pleasing him or keeping his law, we've, we are not believing his word. And we do this because we are broken from the fall to have in our nature a bent, a predisposition to works righteousness. We want to earn our own righteousness. And whatever, we might say, okay, I finally get that. He's, he's got to me. I recognize I can't do that. And we might understand the gospel. But we just walk away from that for just a little bit. And we fall back into the same thing. We want to earn our own righteousness. When we hear of others' sins, we too frequently think somehow that we deserve grace more than they do. I had a conversation with a woman one day who had been taught that as we come to Christ, we cannot sin. We no longer sin. And I challenged her on that whole thing. That, you know, how could you be a believer yet still be in sin? Now, she could quickly admit that we are not as perfect, that she was not as perfect as Jesus. So I challenged her to change her standard to Jesus and not other people. Because if we think that we don't sin and we look at other people and we improve ourselves over them, we can, we can support that doctrine and say, yes, we do not sin like they do. But if we're going to recognize that we are not as holy as Jesus, that's our standard. And that's where our hearts continue to have problems. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Martin Luther explained that we are simultaneously justified and a sinner. We're simultaneously a saint and sinner. So we are justified before a holy God even though we are sinners. And then it's by God's grace working in us through his Holy Spirit and his word that 
takes that forever long time to purge sin out of us. And the Holy Spirit's job in sanctification is to show us our sins so that we can repent and believe. The gospel calls a repent and believe, and that is what it takes to come to him. But as we grow in him, we need the same thing it took to get to him, which is the gospel. Our response is going to be a repent and believe. Do you recognize how guilty you are before a holy God? This is where verse 57 talks about judging what is right. Judging for yourselves what is right. It's recognizing and discerning our own state of sin. Those who heard Jesus' words recognize, who, who heed, those who heed Jesus' words recognize that they are guilty and are heading to court. So Jesus calls us to judge rightly in this life and settle out of court so that he will not come, we will not come to court in the final judgment, but Christ will stand in our place. The Lord is calling you to discern the times. Look around you with spiritual eyes. Then discern your need and settle out of court. Those who cling to Jesus pass from death to life in the here and now. So my friends, look to Jesus and find life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.